KPBS On Demand is supported by the San Diego Repertory Theater, presenting Mother Road, a Grapes of Wrath for the 21st Century, from acclaimed Latinx playwright Octavio Solis, live on the Lyceum Theater stage. Shows running October 7th through October 31st. Tickets available at sdrep.org. From KPBS and Associated We All in San Diego, welcome to Incoming, the series that brings you true stories from the lives of veterans told in their own words, straight from their own mouths. I'm your host, Justin Hudnall. We'll be talking today with the playwright and memoirist Delia Knight, mostly about her relationship with her Marine veteran brother and how the war not only challenged their relationship, but affected their entire family unit. Delia has written extensively on the subject, including a full-length play, Disappearing Act, which debuted at the Diversionary Theater in 2015, as well as several nonfiction pieces she's going to share as part of today's show. We were lucky enough to meet Delia several years ago when she began performing on Sociawayal's Vamp Storytelling Showcase, and she's also a contributing writer in our new anthology, Sex, Drugs, and Copenhagen. We'll be back right after this. KPBS On Demand is supported by Rancho La Puerta, a wellness resort on 4,000 private acres in the mountains near San Diego. Family-owned since 1940, Rancho La Puerta offers mindfulness and fitness vacations featuring farm-fresh cuisine. RanchoLaPuerta.com Welcome back to Incoming and our guest this hour, the playwright and memoirist Delia Knight. Some of the things we love about the way Delia shows the effects of war on families is how she's able to see it from everyone's side at once, almost, and walk through the turmoil with fairness and compassion in all directions. She's able to see the pain and vulnerability without sugarcoating the moments when someone is acting like an ass or a classic enabler of bad behavior. But the story of her and her brother also give hope for other military families struggling with post-traumatic stress, moral injury, and re-entry sickness. But Delia does a better job of telling it in her own words, and so without further ado, please meet today's guest, Ms. Delia Knight. Hi, I'm Delia Knight, and I'll be reading my story, New Traditions. The plane touches the tarmac, and I drum the back of my nails against the window as we come roaring to slowness. Please keep him safe. One finger for each of the four years of active duty. I turned quite superstitious after my brother's enlistment in fall of 2001. Superstition included convincing myself that taking the same way to work every day, sitting in the same row at church, and saying a prayer when I am stopped at a red light. I've turned certifiably nutso after his deployment in March. Certifiably nutso included, but is not limited to, halting anything I was doing every time I think of him, which is more than I can count in a day, and counting 10 hours ahead, Baghdad time then saying a prayer for whatever he was doing in that exact moment. Eating a meal, cleaning his weapon, going outside the wire. Convinced that if I just keep up with all these tiny rituals, it will all amount to his safe return. So far, it has worked. It's Christmas Day, 2003, and my mom's stepdad and I fly from San Francisco to Phoenix home to my future sister-in-law and her mother. We are here to celebrate the holiday. Jan is between deployments, having arrived home in September, his first Christmas home from war, and he left a Middle Eastern desert to celebrate in a Southwestern desert. He meets us at the airport and I can tell something is wrong. He looks more tired than usual and rough. Not just lack of sleep rough, but battling demons rough. Probably a long night the night before, One of our childhood friends, who was also in the Marines, got a 96-hour libo, drove over from Yuma, and is celebrating the holiday with us. I am positive that they were drinking last night, swapping stories of time and country and idiot things they did as kids. They probably ushered in the sunrise, stumbling to bed in the soft light of morning. I hug Jan. He tenses up. Something is definitely wrong. I feel it in the thudding hand on my back, He's compensating, trying to make us all feel at ease when I know he's not at ease. And he knows I know. It's the result of years of terrorizing each other as children, 
and becoming best friends as adults. I know him like I know myself. Something is wrong. He smiles at, don't worry about it, everything is f***ing peachy smile. I nod and accept that, even though I can smell the whiskey and beer wafting off of him. Being between deployments is a limbo time where you're not home long enough to talk about much, and so you carry it with you, no matter how heavy it is. First stop, grocery store, beer. He has the distant eyes of someone who has seen too much. After the previous night of binge drinking and the whisper of a hangover, he had to start drinking again. Running out of beer meant sobering up, and sobering up meant answering questions. He needs to be well on the way to being drunk. He needs cigarettes and beer. Cigarettes and beer, ever the prepared Marine, he was gathering what he needed before entering battle. Something to keep him busy, something to keep him numb. I stare out the window on the way to the house. Instead of lawns, there are rocks. In the place of trees with leaves blowing in the breeze, there is cactus, immovable and prickly. There is both a stark beauty and a sense of desperation. Our bodies know the hazards of the desert, the lack of a water source, food, and shelter. We instinctively know that if we don't act fast, we're going to die. We arrive at a one-story tract home that looks like every other house in the neighborhood. Jan cracks open a beer. The cracking open of a can sounds refreshing an exciting start to a party, unlimited fun. It's not, not now. The opening of the can is a warning shot. The house is beige, white trim, rock and cactus in the front yard. The house is more formal than comfortable. Very few chips in the paint, scuff marks on the floor, and any of the hallmarks of a well-worn and well-loved home. This is just a house, a house where people live. Dinner is polite, no one speaks of politics or religion. We chew our food, eat slowly and smile. The sound of more beer cans opening, fork scraping plates, and the occasional murmurings of, this is delicious and thank you. Cleanup is all the ladies in the kitchen, searching out containers to put leftovers in and gingerly handling the china in hot soapy water. It is also polite, a lot of Mm, such good food, and I appreciate the effort. Christmas in the desert is a long fuse. It is lit, and I have no idea when it's going to explode. As the dishes sat in the drying rack, we sat in the living room near the front door, watching television. Something holiday, something that has the potential to please everyone. I hear an argument, muffled. Someone trying to hide something that can no longer be hidden. Demons may live in the darkness, but they make a play for the light. They crave being heard, and it's easier to penetrate boundaries when you've been drinking. Jan storms past us, shirtless, his clothes spilling out of his duffel bag. I felt an alarm go off in my head. He loved his clothes. He took great pride in them, picking them out, matching them. He'd lost weight in boot camp, and during his first leave, he started buying clothes that fit his new body. There were many points during the day when I thought things weren't right. Comments made, facial expressions that were supposed to be funny or entertaining, but only belied a deep pain. They were things I could second guess or convince myself I was being worried or an overprotective big sister with an overactive imagination. Seeing clothes drag across the floor, trailing behind him like a child trying to keep up with a swift moving parent was something that made it real. The complete disregard of the things he treasured sent a chill up my spine. This wasn't him. He no longer had the energy to keep up the facade of a stoic combat veteran. His crumpled clothes were his tell. Recipe for disaster. One part politeness, eight parts domestic beer, three parts whiskey, 
one part horrific events you have yet developed the language to tell. My mom and I look at each other and go chasing after him. It is still hot and we see my brother fumbling to get into his car. Where are you going, my mom screams. Leaving this house. He is trying to keep it together, a barely held together rage. You can't drive, bud, you've been drinking, my mom says, approaching the driver's side of the car. With that, my brother hurls his keys down the street. He throws them with such a force that I'm convinced he doesn't want them to be found. Seconds later, keys hit the asphalt. The sound is empty. My mom turns toward the sound and runs towards it. My brother storms up to me in the driveway. He is screaming in my face. I can't stay here, he spits out. Tears fill his eyes and he is clenching his teeth. I do the only thing I can think to do. I throw my arms around him and I put my ear to his chest, listening to his heart thump wildly like a caged animal trying to get free. He pushes against the top of my shoulder, screaming, let go of me, Dell. My grip tightens. The harder he fights, the harder I hug, not saying anything. F you, let me go, let me fucking go. I want you to leave, F you. I say nothing. I just hold on to him. I feel the anger and rage and guilt and shame pulsing through him. It's alive and separate from who he is. He brought it back from this deployment. I wait, hoping that I can outlast the episode. My mom comes running up the driveway and throws her arms around both of us. My brother no longer has any fight. He collapses into a sobbing. I just want to die, he repeats over and over again, a mantra of release as my mom holds him like she's held both of us since birth, her hands running up and down his back. It's okay, bud, her mantra in response. We are sitting on the back patio in silence. We wait for someone to speak. Jan is the first to break the silence. The sound of a cat being twisted off a bottle and flung onto a glass tabletop. The sound of a pack of cigarettes being tapped against the inside of a wrist and the flint striking flint of a lighter producing flame. A deep inhale and the rosy glow of a lit cigarette. I've killed men, women, and children. My breath catches and I have to take a swig of my beer to swallow down the lump in my throat. My brother no longer has the capacity to keep the awful truth in. He's too tired and too drunk. He forces it out on an exhale, no longer wanting to carry the burden of this himself. I was in a convoy and there was a guy with a gun on a roof. I took my shot. I hit him and he tumbled off of the roof. And as I watched him fall, I realized he couldn't have been more than 14 or 15. He shook his head and took a long drag. I just wish he didn't pick up a gun that morning. I wished I could have told him to just go home. You're a kid, go home and kick around a ball. Just don't pick up the gun. I shifted my weight. This is what I waited to hear. What I prayed my superstitious routines would yield. This is what I knew was coming forced over teeth and lips in the exhausted exhale of smoke and awful honesty. I prayed every Sunday at church to bring him home safe. And if that happened, then I could handle anything. I could handle any story, any injury, anything. Just bring him home. I waited to hear this. And when I did, when I heard it, when I realized what was being said, all I wanted was it for it to be taken back. I've never been so grateful for darkness and drunkenness and easy hiding places. It was a cloak I could use to disguise my inability to handle everything I promised I was able to handle. I promised anything before I fully understood what anything was. People aren't on this planet anymore because of me. We all sat in silence. The air sucked out of the space. While some families might be singing Christmas carols, gathered around a fire and sipping hot cocoa, 
here we were, telling ghost stories around lit cigarettes with warm beer. It's what people do in the desert. They tell ghost stories. They tell how people survive and how others don't make it to see sunrise. Ghost stories highlight what we're afraid to become, what we know without saying that if pushed, we will do anything to survive, that all the politeness will not put the genie back in the bottle. No amount of Christmas tradition and civility will erase what we all now know. People are no longer on this earth at the hands of My mom finally called it. Let's go to bed, she announced. Before too many questions could be asked, before the sun rose and had to usher in the day with that truth, we went shuffling off to bed. I caught my brother's arm as he was going through the sliding glass door. I love you, bud. I attempted a smile and threw my arms around him. I know, Del. I love you too, he said, his chin buried in the top of my shoulder. The next afternoon, Jan decided he had to leave. I drove him from Phoenix to Northern California. When he got in the passenger seat, I started the car. My mom knocked on the driver's side window, her hand, two fingers extended, one to the ear, one to the mouth, the universal sign for call me when you get there. I nodded. She stepped back in the driveway and waved. I turned toward Jan. Home, I smiled home, he exhaled. Delia Knight, thanks so much for joining us on Incoming in my living room when we get to catch you on the weekend. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. So why don't you start us off by telling us what it was like growing up with your brother? Well, we were mortal enemies until about, I would say I was... 13, 14, and he's three years younger. So he went through a growth spurt, probably, uh, I don't know, 11, 12. And he grew, I don't know, six inches and gained about 50 pounds in two weeks. And we used to have these knockdown drag out fights. He eventually was just able to pummel me. So um, at that point, I decided for self-preservation reasons, we should just become friends. And (laughs) so our friendship started from there. And it really kind of blossomed when he, I was in college here in San Diego, and he was stationed at Pendleton for a school of infantry. And he'd come over on the weekends to visit me at college. And eventually he was stationed in 29 Palms and would come over on the weekends as well. So that's kind of the story. So we just got closer and closer. And what do you feel now were his motivations for joining the Marine Corps, as you understand them? As I understand them, um, we grew up in a very liberal household. However, we did have, my uncle was a Marine. My Both my grandfathers served. So there was definitely a family dynamic of service. But we weren't really kind of like, Ura patriots. And at a certain point in high school, like he was a big stoner. And we grew up in kind of a small town ish. I think just in order to get out of that town, he decided kind of in eighth grade that he wanted to get out and that schooling wasn't going to be the way. So he brought up going into the Marine Corps pretty like in high school. My mom was like, okay, just graduate. And he ended up, he was supposed to go in, I think, September. 12th 2001 so right after September 11th and they delayed everything and then I think he went in two weeks later to basic training so yeah it was kind of like a storm but he wanted the whole summer to off essentially and how did your family react to his decision to enlist he's always been kind of his own person when it comes to that like so there was a little bit of talk about like you know we don't want you to kind of be in harm's way. Like I think most families, that's their initial thought. And he very much was like, I need this in order to mature. Like I I need the discipline essentially. So we were all kind of like, all right. And um, yeah, then we were kind of very nervous after that, but it was 
probably one of the best experiences of his life. Like even the two tours in Iraq and just the friends that he made, just like thinking of some of the stories that he told. And that was one of the surprising things, I guess, was it wasn't all this horrible, detrimental, like tragic experience. Like there was a lot of humor. Like he told a lot of funny stories about what happened and what transpired. We'll be right back after this. KPBS On Demand is supported by Pacific Arts Movement's 2021 San Diego Asian Film Festival, October 28th through November 6th, showcasing over 130 films and honoring Asian and Asian American filmmakers. For tickets and information, go to sdaff.org. Welcome back to Incoming and our guest today, the writer Delian Knight, talking about the impact of war on the military family. What was communication like between the two of you during his deployment? A lot of letters. It was mostly letters from my end. (laughs) And um, he would write stuff back saying that, like, he couldn't respond to, like, a lot of my questions. So I would just drone on about, like, everyday life. And he's like, yeah, keep that coming. And we sent a lot of care packages. We were in a church community at the time. And my mom would put out the call to all the... um, church ladies so we'd have like just boxes and boxes of stuff to send over so my brother was kind of at one point running his own little px um, and trading stuff and it was between the deployments that like i wanted him to talk about things and he just couldn't do it so i just waited like it's the most patience i think i've ever had for something to unfold And I knew it would, like I knew it was coming, I knew it was there, but he just, for self-preservation, couldn't talk about it in the in-between time. What do you attribute your ability to understand the need for silence on these subject matters from him? From him, I don't think he wanted to worry my mom and I, and we are, (laughs) we're definitely ladies who worry. He was very open eventually, but he said, there's some things that only the guys I served with are going to know. Like that's, I just, I can't, I can't say it. I can't repeat it over again. When he first came back, this level of wanting to keep us safe, to keep us buffered from those realities, it got to be very apparent after a while that he wasn't able to shoulder that himself he started to become more open and more transparent in the beginning it kind of had to do with his level of drunkenness (laughs) what he was kind of spilling out but he was self-medicating yeah oh yeah we lived in san francisco right after he was discharged and i was actually just telling a friend this that we used to on the weekends go on what we called adventure walks and we walked the entire city for like 12 hours during those days that's when this kind of, I think, combination of movement, and we were familiar with that city, kind of like opened the floodgates to be able to share things. Because I kind of likened it to like telling a story straight ahead. He wasn't having to like have this conversation with me. We were just alongside of each other. So it was almost like him talking to himself sometimes. So I think that kind of started the catharsis of, okay, I need to get help. Okay, there's stuff that I need to deal with that's not just going to go away. How do you go about taking care of somebody who's trying to take care of you by not letting you take care of them? (laughs) It's an enigma wrapped in a... um, (laughs) I think because we knew each other so well. Like, I think growing up with someone and being close you have this separate language and my brother and I certainly do. And we still do to this day. And, uh, (laughs) and we just kind of are able to interlope on each other's thoughts almost. So to be able to help or assist, it's like I knew when to kind of come at him with everything I had and when to hold back and let him figure it out himself and when to push it and say, look, you need to handle this. 
and when to say, all right, here's another beer. (laughs) So it was kind of this balancing act and just waiting. And I think that's the thing that a lot of people don't understand, that it's an incredible amount of patience to just wait for a story, wait for somebody to tell you something and not demand it because it just made him, like whenever I did demand it, it just made him clam up all the more. It reminds me of something I heard Kurt Vonnegut's son actually say in an interview in relationship with his dad and his father's post-traumatic stress disorder about how there's a time when a veteran really needs to talk or any traumatized person really needs to talk. And there's a time when they really don't need to talk and they're equally important and deserve the same respect. Do you find that to be the case? Absolutely. A hundred percent. And it took a while just because of that circumstance, because of something so new and war or combat is nothing like what you hear about on like any kind of news media, anything like that. Like you have this small kind of birth of knowledge with what you think it is. And then this whole other world kind of comes rushing in. And it is, it's completely different than anything that I anticipated. So I was expecting this kind of like, like fist shaking to God type of like dark night of the soul for like, you know, I was prepared for that. I wasn't prepared for, I really liked it. Or this is a funny thing that happened. Or like we blew up this porta potty or like just these things that it's like, where else on earth are you going to have this experience? And I think part of it for him was not a guilt, but just this cognizance of no one's going to understand those parts like people are going to understand the bloodshed and buddies dying and that kind of stuff and have this face that like they I mean that's one thing my brother just couldn't stand was like the face that people would look at you with when it's like oh you're a veteran and it's like this oh concerned exactly I'm really concerned so I've heard some things about PTSD and I you know and it's like we all have Um, but yeah I think it was an openness to just let him be exactly who he was at any point in time and if that was a drunk for two weeks straight great if that was like work out like a maniac guy awesome it was okay exactly where he was and that was something that my mom and I just kept reiterating over and over and over again that wherever you are it's okay just come at us from that place so a lot of this process you're talking about happened between deployments so walk us through the story of his homecoming just (laughs) the first one or second one well let's start with the first one and then go into the second one the first one I don't think a lot of people understood the difference, but my mom and I, since we were so close, got it. And it was, it was his eyes and he just, there was something that wasn't right. People perceive like you should be so grateful to be here. And so like, here's a cheeseburger and here is you know, let's go to a ball game and like all of these things that you think that that person wants. So in that first homecoming, there was a lot of drinking, a lot, a lot. And just kind of this, okay, so you're drinking a lot now. <laughs> and um, and he just came out and told us straight up, like, I'm, I can't talk to you about what happened because I know I have to go back. And he's like, I can't unpack all of this stuff and then go back and be in country another seven, eight months and survive. I can't do it. So we just kind of like let it alone. And it was the elephant in the room for those seven months. And that saying goodbye that second time and knowing kind of what he was going into was awful. It was the worst, like (laughs) the worst time at an airport I've ever had. Just watching somebody like, walk to the gate and all of us were like well that's done (laughs) like it was just such a 
it was it was bad the second homecoming was a little bit different because he was able to breathe a little bit of a sigh of relief but not too much because he might have been up for a third deployment like he didn't quite know how fast he'd be going back but once it was clear that he was not going to go back that was when he kind of breathed a little bit of sigh of relief and kind of started unpacking things as it were so the second tour as well they were on the border of Iraq and Syria and it was just a different type of deployment and that's when he lost a lot of people Sunni triangle yeah yep he felt there was more of a purpose the first go around with kind of the fall of Baghdad and bringing Saddam to justice and then the second time they were just kind of trying to stop the opiate trade over the Syrian border. And he, he was like, we're just getting picked off one by one. And one of his really good friends was killed. That was when, in his eyes, I think that it was just lost. Like it was just not worth all of this. What did Game Over look like witnessing him, his change? It just surprised us that when he went in, and when he came back from that, it was this hardness, just this kindness was kind of gone. And there was a definite edge. And that edge was only exacerbated by liquor. You end up realizing quickly that there's nothing you can do. And that was probably one of the worst feelings. And there was a few other guys like one of his friends was killed in action in afghanistan he just he took that so hard because you know he felt like his friend talked to him about being in the marines and so he felt partly responsible like that this guy was over like third or fourth time and i think that's like who he is he feels this responsibility i think he had one friend kind of later that committed suicide, but a lot of his friends have just struggled with how to deal with what they witnessed. The suicide or death, like that's such kind of a finite thing. It's the ongoing care. It's the ongoing figuring out what to do next. PTSD just is a shapeshifter. So if it's not kind of attacking here, something else will pop up over here. So it's like a giant game of whack-a-mole. And fortunately, he's married to a wonderful woman who helps him handle that. Because otherwise, I think a lot of people are just kind of at their wit's end with how to do anything. I think him having kids really changed the conversation for him because he wasn't able to have the same kind of worldview. And he had two little girls, so (laughs) I think that helps as well. That brought him outside of himself, but he's still dealing with how to move forward. That's still a conversation we're having 17 years later, 16 years later. Yeah. And it's going to be probably for life. (laughs) My brother Jan has a scar above his left eye from where I almost poked his eye out playing stick wars. I notice it while we, my brother, my mom, and myself are standing in the Motel 6 parking lot in 29 Palms. It's January, it's early morning, it's hot. Jan is leaving for Iraq in a few weeks and this is goodbye. More accurately, we exchange every euphemism for goodbye. See you soon, see you later, catch you later. Nothing as final as goodbye. We take goofy photos, we crack jokes, and then it is time. The last see you soon. I wave, get in Jan's car, and drive the 600 miles back to my parents' house crying. Waiting through deployment is ordinary and excruciating. It's the ring of a telephone that goes to voicemail, the sound of a doorbell that you're afraid to answer, the ambient noise of cable news talking about troop movements and repercussions of war. It's Sunday Mass. Every week, each hymn sung through a clenched throat, emotion that fills the muscles so you're barely able to breathe choking out his favorite hymn. The hymn, Dona Nobis Pacem, Latin for God give to us peace. I pretend I'm moved to tears by the sound of the church choir instead of being worried. This is a sign that something has happened. Something bad has happened. 
I bow my head to pray, hands clasped so tight my knuckles turn white, and the gentle prayer I was whispering has turned into something more urgent. The prayer that once sounded like a lullaby has turned desperate. It's turned into bargaining and then to begging. Promising to do anything to have him come home before you have any idea what anything means. It's the nights I drink too much in order to quiet my mind. I stumble into bed, calculating what time it is in Baghdad by tapping my fingers against the pillow. It's the days when I know I'm singing this song solo because my friends don't understand this type of waiting. The dread, the frustration, the worry, the sadness, the counting down. After the birthdays he's missing, more care packages, more self-medication, I find myself here in a different parking lot waiting the final wait. In his letters home smudged with dirt, he describes the heat, sand, and smell. He keeps it light, saying thank you for the care packages, requesting more batteries or fly strips or chewing tobacco, requesting you not send anything that melts because even in winter, chocolate will not hold up. Occasionally, like a hidden track on a CD, he sneaks in, I have so much to tell you. I hope you're ready. I was ready. I've spent the last several months waiting. Waiting is a certain type of music. It's the packing tape sealing up care packages, eager pens scratching against paper, writing a letter every day longhand, which conveys the message better. I love you. I miss you. Stay safe. Not always in that order, but a catchy tune that I couldn't get out of my head. All of the days add up to this moment, standing in a too hot parking lot in the middle of the desert. I'm waiting, standing next to my mom with a homemade welcome home sign, tapping my fingers against the poster board, tapping out the rhythm of my breath that is at odds with my heart, and it reminds me of the first time I sang row, row, row your boat in rounds. We've earned the right to stand in this parking lot, looking forward to the wait because this is the home stretch. This is when waiting finally feels easy. It feels like floating, feels like the start of a road trip, the windows down, a full tank of gas, and your favorite song on the radio. Seven months have turned into moments. Yellow buses with squeaky axles round the corner and all of us, all of us who spent the last seven months waiting push up against the chain link fence. Signs raised above our heads, calling out to the men hanging out of tiny windows. Frenzied yelling of names, tears streaming down faces, boots against blacktop, men piling over the chain link fence, rattling like a tambourine. People falling into one another. The half that is waited and the half that has made the long journey home, fitting together, finally. When we return home and there is a giant party with more homemade signs, tables packed with food and coolers full of booze, people crowd into our house and backyard, bone-crushing handshakes from men, weepy hugs from women, and I watch him as he's trying to keep time, trying to readjust immediately. He looks distant and uncomfortable even though this party is in his honor, and I wait for him to pull me aside to tell me all the things he promised he had to tell. People use the word hero, and I watch his face tighten and his jaw clench, like hearing feedback in a speaker. There are men he served with who didn't make it home, and to him there is no heroism in that. I stare as he sits at the table alone, drumming his fingers, staring at a far-off place I can't see. After most of the guests leaves, the balloons float to the ground, and the ice in the cooler has melted. Bottles clink together, and I wait. I wait for the things that were so important to tell, and it doesn't happen. Not tonight, not tomorrow, or tomorrow night. Weeks later, when the silence becomes deafening and I'm afraid to ask him how he's doing, he asks me to go for a drive with him. He's made a CD entitled Our War. When I ask him where he'd like to go, he says anywhere. Anywhere said like a remedy, an anecdote to the heaviness. I'm listening to The Grateful Dead, Box of Rain, Jimi Hendrix, Little Wing, Radiohead's Karma Police. For a minute there, I lost myself. I try to decipher a meaning out of the lyrics. He spends most of the ride out to the coast, staring out the window, and I drive. Silent. I wait for the words, wondering what he has seen. Finally, the breaking waves are visible from the highway. It dawns on me that this is his story. He couldn't find the words, so he found the music. These songs explain long nights on patrol, sandstorms, breakups, bad ones, real f***ed up ones. Songs about saying goodbye, 
songs to remember and songs to forget. Before he was able to arrange thoughts into words, he heard music. In order to understand, to really get it, I had to learn the song. Combat is an experience that's carried off the battlefield. It comes home and infiltrates everything. I became an expert at waiting, and now I had to become an expert at listening. We were the needle of the record player and the groove of the record. In order to play the music, we needed both components. Before I heard him speak of shooting people first, gathering up pieces of his friends' bodies to ship home, the mass graves, I listened. I heard tiny symphonies of his finger resting on the trigger, the cymbal clash of a 50 caliber round, tearing flesh, shattering bone, and ending life. Now, 10 years have passed, and perspective makes any song easier to sing. Now he is married with two little girls. The songs have shifted from Johnny Cash to Yo Gabba Gabba. <laughs> Less music to explain the past and more to build a future. Now instead of a gun or a bottle of whiskey or numerous regrets, he holds a ukulele in his hands. He invites me over one night to share a song he has just learned, Somewhere Over the Rainbow. He plays the instrument hard, and I wonder if it will put up with this beating. He sings at full voice, and when he sings, High above the chimney tops, that's where you'll find me. His voice cracks with emotion. I watch his scarred hands, scarred from the sizzling heat of bullet casings. I watch his fingers shake and fumble, knowing the journey. After everything, this is the song we were meant to sing. Ms. Delia Knight. We'll be right back after this. Welcome back to Incoming, where we're speaking with our guest, playwright Delia Knight. I think you really hit on something poignant by pointing out that it's not the Hollywood dramatic event. It's not necessarily the death of the friend or the, the hair that breaks the camel's back. It's the little cracks in the water glass that accumulate just from frustration and feeling abandoned and not having a tribe anymore and being helpless. Yeah, absolutely. And definitely there are times where I'm like, I can't be around people. Like there is an anxiety level to what could possibly happen in order to make somebody feel more normal, I guess, but kind of like maybe they're not so insane with anxiety. Like you just adopt that too. So it was kind of like, I mean, I would drink with him for a while. That's fine to kind of get over a hump. And there was a point where I think after his second deployment, because we talked about living together through letters. And he said that was the one thing that got him through every day was just the thought of like us living together in San Francisco, having a different life, just living the two of us as adults. And when he came back, he got just real nasty with alcohol. And there was a point where I told him I had kind of an intervention and I said, like, if you continue to drink like this, we can't live together. Like, I love you. I'll do anything for you, but I can't live with this behavior. I can't do it. And it was this time between being back and being discharged. And I think all these guys knowing that they had to say goodbye to this crew of people was just, I mean, they were all kind of acting out in a variety of ways. And he said, he's like, okay, I like, I'll put kind of a hamper on the drinking when I'm discharged. He's like, please don't ask me to do it now. I can't do it now. But I understand where you're coming from and I won't. And he was true to his word. It's amazingly prescient on his part that he knew that this is the phase that's going to get me. So let me get through this before we talk about change and growth. Yeah, he is incredibly self-aware. I will say that for him. I mean, he was raised, <laughs> he was raised with all women. So <laughs> Rubs off. yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. He knew in that couple of months that he just couldn't, he couldn't bear being sober and like process through things. And I said, okay, 
So that's been the tenure of our friendship is that kind of realization and somebody saying like, okay, I can meet you this part of the way. (laughs) And then I, you know, this is where it has to give and there has to be some conciliatory type of deal. Tell us about how you came to decide to write about this and what motivated it. How did you approach the subject matter? How did you wrestle with the idea of telling someone else's story? That was partially your story, not entirely. Partially, yeah. There was no other story I could tell. I think with any type of experience like this or any trauma that you go through or any trauma that you witness somebody else going through, there is a level of almost learning a new language, learning how to talk about it, learning how to process through it. And this affected me so deeply, so profoundly that it's like I knew that I had to just kind of pay homage to the new language that you learn. And it was an experience that I knew that my brother would never write about. For me, it was an outlet. I mean, perhaps for him, I was his sounding board. And for me, writing about it was my sounding board. Because there were so many things that he kind of grappled with than that I grappled with. And there was no other way for me to grapple with them besides writing about it. Do you think it's a fair statement to say that your experiences with him, watching him change and watching him come back to himself led to a degree of secondary trauma? A little bit, yeah. I think there's all of these layers that you kind of go through and that it's this new kind of like, eventually the wound is gonna scar, but you have to go through a lot of like iterations of maybe you get stitches and then maybe, you know, that scab falls off and there's another scab and there's another one and there's an, you know, cause you keep picking at it. That's the other thing. This will never go away. And I think letting him know that and letting the other guys that he served with and like some of the guys that I grew up with that went in, this is always going to be there in some form. It's not always going to be the same, but you're always going to have these stories or this pain and it might change types of pain it might not be a sharp stabbing pain but it'll be a dull ache like when a certain anniversary rolls around or it's like getting used to i don't know a new chair which sounds trivial now that i say it out loud but (laughs) um you just kind of have to keep like when you move forward know that you're not totally ever going to leave it behind there's never a point where you're like well that was a great experience and like kind of wrap it up and put it on a shelf you know it's not summer camp so (laughs) and one of the other things when he was discharged i made sure to tell him two things one we can build up from here like wherever here is we can we can keep going up i don't know where up is either but (laughs) it's for long and we're moving in a direction And also, we're not trying to get back to an old person. I know that old Jan doesn't exist. You know, that was a lot of pressure, I think, for him to try to live up to something that just wasn't there. And by saying, like, to kind of address the ghosts, to kind of say, like, okay, never mind. Um, (laughs) Since that's obliterated, we'll just be whoever we are right now we were able to release, I think, a lot out of the expectation of what this is supposed to look like. So having been through all this, what do you think is missing from the civilian consciousness that would make it easier? I think what's missing is a transparency to conversation about what it takes, essentially. I think I was in a vast group of people that were wildly underprepared for what he would come back with, what like demons, what ghosts, what like just what he would need for support. And I think if we're willing to have an honest conversation about the totality of helping people, yes, maybe it's pharmaceuticals, maybe it's talk therapy, maybe it's walking it out, but it's going to be, I think, an individual thing for everyone. 
and bureaucracies don't lend themselves <laughs> to individual things. It's going to take a one-on-one effort, people talking to people. But yeah, I think as much as you can just let people be and let them have their space and let them come to you and wait, have patience, which yeah, is <laughs> true irony here that I'm talking about having patience and I had zero. <laughs> so. Well, and maybe it's the stories like the ones you tell that'll raise that public consciousness that'll make people even aware of what to be aware of, you know, how to begin to begin. Yeah, there was one thing that my brother really, people would want to talk to him about his experience. And there's this drive to really, from pe- and he could see it in people, to ask if he killed anyone. And that was like the big question. And he said, he's like, you know, if you have the balls to ask me that question, have the guts to stick around for the answer. And it's one of those things that it's like such a voyeuristic question. That is a struggle for him every single day that there's no longer people in the world because of him. And it's something that he's had to deal with every day since then. And it affects you so deeply because you're trained to do it and you do it and you come back here and have to deal with the repercussions of it. Delia Knight, thank you so much for being with us. We look forward to reading and hearing all your future stories, and thanks for being on Incoming. Thank you, Justin. I appreciate it. That is our show with our friend Delia Knight. You can read some of her works in our new Incoming anthology, Sex, Drugs, and Copenhagen, available now on Amazon.com. Incoming is produced by myself, Justin Hudnall. Our editor is Jennifer Pepperpot Corley. At KPBS, Kurt Conan is radio production manager. Emily Jankowski is technical director, Kinsey Moreland is podcast coordinator, Lisa Jane Morissette is operations manager, and John Decker is director of programming. Music used in Delia Knight's stories were provided by the artists Silicon Transmitter and Cambo. Incoming is made possible by the KPBS Explore Fund, the California Arts Council's Veterans Initiative in the Arts, the City of San Diego's Commission for Arts and Culture, and the supporting members of So Say We All. You can find us on the web and learn more at SoSayWeAllOnline.com. We highly encourage you to do it. And also, please subscribe to Incoming. Drop us a rating and a review. It helps us out so much. You can do that on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you like to do your podcasting. We don't judge. And if you want to get in touch with us, we want that as well. Make it happen by email at info at SoSayWeAllOnline.com. Thanks for listening, everybody. Let's talk again soon. KPBS On Demand is supported by the Institute of Contemporary Art San Diego with Gabriel Rico's Unity and Variety, neon, taxidermy, and augmented reality sculptures from locally sourced objects transform the galleries. Open September 24th in Balboa Park, ICASanDiego.org.